Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit And that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Father, I ask that as we understand these words that your Son spoke to his disciples, I pray, Lord, that they'll come with a fresh power and insight for our lives now. You'll lead us in your ways. Teach us to repent where necessary and to lean in to the grace and the power that we have in you to live lives that bring you glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, I want to remind you of the, the profound significance of this particular moment in which Jesus is speaking. Chapters 13 through to 17 are all an extended discourse of Jesus in which they have just sat down here in his 12 disciples for the Passover meal on the evening when he is about to be betrayed, arrested, uh, put on trial, beaten, flogged, and then crucified the next day. And while the disciples are not conscious that that is what is about to take place, he keeps telling them, um, but the penny hasn't really dropped. Jesus is aware in his spirit, he knows from the Lord, that these are his final moments with these men before he is killed. And because the cross is looming in his mind, I think that every word has a a power and a focus and an intention to it. I've no doubt that that's why John, when he was writing his his gospel, the, the 21 chapters that he wrote in his gospel, devoted all these chapters to these these few hours together in which Jesus spoke in this way. And so taking this particular passage out, I just want you to understand the force of it and the sobriety of the moment as he's speaking to these men. 
And also, you have to understand it from the perspective of the men themselves. Jesus' mind is acutely aware of his looming crucifixion, but he's also aware of what he's entrusting to them. And the reality that his legacy would live not in any books, because he hadn't written anything, nor in any institutions, but rather just in these men gathered before him. And so there's a poignancy to every word that he is saying here and a weightiness to them. He wants them to understand that what is taking place in this moment in history was a profound turning point. It's a turning point, of course, in the ministry of Jesus, his departure. It's a turning point in the lives of these men as they are entrusted with this commission to be his representatives on earth and to begin the church. It's a turning point for the people of God generally because all of history up to this point with God's dealings with Israel is coming to a focal moment in the death of Jesus that will then lead to the exponential expansion and growth of God's work in the whole world and therefore it's also a turning point for the whole world. I cannot do justice to the significance therefore of what is happening here in these moments. And Jesus is wanting to explain something of this pivotal axis moment in history of what's taking place here when he begins in this way and says, I am the true vine. He's calling to mind for these men who knew their Old Testament scriptures an image, a metaphor that had been used of God's people on many occasions in which the people of God are described as a vine planted by the Father with the intention of bringing fruit and lushness and to be a gift to the nations, essentially. But most of the places when the image of the vine is being used of Israel as a people, it's describing the failure of the vine to fulfill its destiny and to be all that it's meant to be. So, for example, in Psalm 80, there's a lament going on there in which it's described God's work with this people. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. A picture of God putting Israel in the land of Canaan. You cleared the ground for it. You took deep root and filled the land. But then there's this lament that takes place. It says, why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. You know, the people had been conquered by nation after nation. And empires had, you know, they'd been a bit of a pinball among the surrounding empires. It says, the boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. You know, wild animals are trampled through your vineyard, eating all its fruit. And the people of God are as nothing. And really, there's lament of what's happened to them. Other passages speak of the failure within the people themselves to be a fruitful nation. But it begins to turn to hope. In that same psalm, it says, they've burned it with fire, they've cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you've made strong for yourself. So even as there's this grief about the failure of the people of God to be what they're meant to be in the way that they had become such a decrepit and damaged vine, there is in there the seed of hope of the son of man his coming, and all that that would mean in terms of life to the nation. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's signaling 
the beginning of a new age in which God's work and intention to bless the world will be worked in and through Jesus on a global scale that he will fulfill the destiny of God's people in himself. I am the true vine, it says. Now, what does this have to do with you and me? You have to acknowledge that in the midst of this kind of global vision of what Jesus would be and do and the way in which his life will touch countless individuals across the, the world, Jesus brings us right down to the level of you and me, to the level of the individual. He speaks of every branch in me. He says, you, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And so all that destiny and power and life that was pregnant within Christ for the blessing and impact of the nations, you and I are implicated in that if you're a believer in Jesus because you're connected with the vine and your destiny and purpose and calling is wrapped up in what Christ had come to achieve. You're the branches, he says. And so this passage in which Jesus is speaking directly to these men is one that provokes deep and ought to awaken deep self-examination in us. If Christ pictures the people of God as a, as a vine full of life, and you as a branch, the application comes as you begin to turn your eyes towards yourself and think, well, what kind of a branch am I? And what is the result and the fruit of God's work in my life? And then also to reflect back on the work of the vine dresser. You know how he opened the passage? He says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And what I want you to understand today is the connection between you as a branch, if you're part of God's people, if you're part of the church, and the work of the vine dresser. He describes the work of his father as being like a wise gardener who knows what he's doing as he walks in among the branches of his vine. What is the vine dresser doing in and among a people like us, the church of God? What is, what is he doing? And I think three answers occur out of this passage that I want to open up to you. And the first is this, that as the father looks upon his vine, he's looking for fruit. It begins and he says, I'm the true vine. My father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. All the way through the New Testament, there is this teaching that to belong to Jesus and to belong to the people of God involves a transformation of life within you that can be described in terms of its marks and the evidences as being as fruitfulness, that Jesus is doing things in you that result in fruitfulness. And it's never, of course, that you must be a changed person in order to belong to Christ. It's not that you have to be a beautiful branch in order to be attached to the vine. We know and understand that the gospel promise is that you believe on Jesus by faith and you're saved. It's as simple as that. However, what is being said here is that the moment that you confess Jesus as your Savior and believe in Him, something takes place spiritually within your life in which you are connected with Him and the evidence of the reality of your connection with Jesus, the proof 
of the life of God in you is that your life now begins to produce fruit in, in various ways. And it comes here through, look at verse 5. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so the first thing you've got to understand then is that as the Father, the vine dresser, is examining his vine, he's looking at, looking at every branch and examining it. He's interested in whether there is fruit upon the branches as an evidence or a proof of the reality of the life of Jesus within you. The question then becomes, well, what, is exactly, what exactly is he looking for? What are these proofs? And as I um, was studying this passage and also looking at all the passages in the New Testament that speak about fruitfulness, and there are many, they roughly fall into three categories. Here in John 15 and elsewhere, all through the New Testament, describes what the fruitfulness is that ought to be true of every one of you if you belong to Jesus. And let me briefly explain what those three marks are. Fruit is, first of all, godliness from the inside out. What the New Testament describes as sanctification. The reality of the inner transformation that takes place when you belong to Jesus. Here in this passage in John 15, Jesus uses the language, for example, of obedience. He says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. And then a little bit further on in verse 14, he says, you, my friends, if you do what I command you. Of course, obedience, doing what Christ commands, is essentially a change of heart in which your life and your desires and everything that you are from the inside out begins to be conformed to the will of Jesus. It's godliness. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this is described. I'll turn with you to Galatians 5 for a moment as an example of this. Um, Paul uses the image of fruitfulness there, and he's contrasting your old life with your new life. And he says that the old life was marked by the desires of the flesh. He says that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. And he describes the desires of the flesh like this. He says the works of the flesh are evident. There's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Almost everything that he mentions there has to do with the inclinations of the heart. The impulses, the uncontrolled lusts and desires that originate from within us that, he says, characterize the old life governed as it was by your own desires. And then he begins to speak about the new life that's governed by the Holy Spirit who comes to live within you when you belong to Jesus. And he says that he produces fruit. And the fruit, he says, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, that when you are connected to Jesus, you're the branch within the vine, 
And the life and the presence of the Holy Spirit is in you, like the sap of the vine flowing into your life. There is an inner transformation that begins to take place within your heart. All of these descriptions he's talking about are heart changes, aren't they? Change of impulse and desire and interest so that you begin to love like you've never loved. You feel joy like you've never known. You feel peace, the peace that comes from God, and so on and so on. And all of it is coming from the inside out. In other words, the first way you can understand the fruit of the, of the Spirit within you or the fruit of being longing to the vine is that it's this godliness that begins to, to be formed within you. You become like Jesus. I can summarize it like that. Another way the New Testament speaks about fruit is it speaks about it in terms of not only of godliness, but then of good works. So everything that is internally taking place, all the change and transformation and the work of God within your heart has to find expression in the life that you live and the things that you do and the way you conduct yourself. Because what is inside must come out. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, for example, Jesus uses a similar analogy of a tree and its fruit. And he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, what you are in your essence will express itself in your life, given time. So that the reality of God's work within you to begin a change, an inner change within you from being what was a bad tree, a dead branch, to use the John 15 picture, to now being full of the life of Jesus, that has to find expression. What is inside has to come out. You know that... Um, I've had the opportunity to observe my wife on numerous occasions now, pregnant. And uh, it is never a pleasant thing to watch. Because from the very earliest weeks when C has been pregnant, um, when you know, we're told that the clump of cells within her, the baby that's beginning to take formation within her, is so small as to be invisible, a speck within the organs inside her, her tummy, that thing begins to pump out hormones that have a disproportionate effect upon her well-being. And if ever you've seen C pregnant, you'll know that she's a completely different person. And uh, it's just extraordinary how so, such a tiny thing inside can have a disproportionate impact. What is internal to her expresses itself. And there's no... There's no secrets. Whenever you see sick, see sick for a prolonged period, you know. You don't need to be told. You know what's going on. And there are women who are like her. It's just, there's no hiding it. What is inside has to come out. And that eventually, that's true in a very literal sense. That what is inside must come out and cause all the chaos. I mean, if you were here this morning, or a couple of you were, you'll know. One of my children, one who came out, was causing so much havoc. He bashed his face down there, bled all over me just before I preached. And so for good or ill, what is inside must come out. The fruit of, of you know, my love for my wife has come out and caused immense havoc. What is inside must come out. 
Another analogy I could use here is that of fermentation. It's one of my favorite analogies because fermentation produces so much that is so good in this world. It produces uh, sourdough bread and beer and wine and injera and kimchi and sauerkraut and all these delicious, wonderful things that take place through an invisible chemical process that is, that is not observable to the eye to begin with, but eventually what is inside has to express itself as a change is taking place at the molecular level within the food stuff. And something like that is happening from the moment you're connected to Jesus. Immediately, a change begins to take place on the inside, and that change we've described as the fruit of godliness and of sanctification. You're not a Christian unless that change is taking place in you by the power of Christ. But that change cannot remain invisible. It can't just be something that takes place on the inside and while your whole life on the outside remains unrenewed. It has to find expression on the outside in terms of the things that you do and the, the way you expend yourself and what you are devoted to. And so here in John 15, for example, one of the evidences of this is the love that Christ's people have for one another. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And taken within this passage, we can see that clearly Christ has in mind that this is one of the fruits of the vine. That God's people, with the power of God in them, learn to love and be devoted to one another. And a Christian is someone who not only knows the individual experience of walking with God so that he changes you from the inside out and you experience the power of his spirit in you, but you also are changed in your relationship with God's people. You can't remain at the edge of the church You have to give yourself to her and love the people within the family of God because that is part of the fruit of the sap of the power of Christ at work in you. And over time, that ought to be the trajectory of every Christian life. We can also think of other elements of good works, the product of a life that is lived in obedience to Jesus. Colossians 1, for example, puts it like this. He's praying for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit. There's the language of fruit again. In every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that wherever you go, the Christ-likeness that is formed within you begins to impact the world around you as you live a life of service and of love and of kindness and of mercy and of patience that changes the atmosphere of your family, it changes the atmosphere of your workplace, it impacts the church around you, it can change your neighborhood, and where there is greater gift and impact, it can change whole institutions, companies, even nations, when God's hand is on individuals. This is fruitfulness. So it has to do with godliness and good works, and the third way that you can examine and understand what fruitfulness is in the life of the believer is that it has to do with gospel multiplication. I'm taking you back into John 15. There's a verse here. Let me read it to you. Verse 16, towards the end, where Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Many commentators have noticed two very important words in that verse that indicate that what Christ had in mind here was the impact of the gospel in and through these men to change the world. One word is this word appoint. I have appointed you. And wherever that word, the Greek word, occurs in the New Testament, it's almost always speaking about 
being set apart for a specific mission. I've chosen you, I've called you, I've commissioned you for a specific mission in this world. The other word that's important here is this word, go. You know from the Great Commission that occurs at the end of the Gospels when Jesus sends his disciples, he tells them to go. So here he says, I've appointed you to go and bear fruit. There can be little doubt that what Jesus has in mind here, as part of the fruitfulness of the life of God flowing in and through these men, would be the impact of the gospel that they carry within them, the seed and the power and the life of God and the message of a crucified Savior and his offer of forgiveness to the world and how that message will be taken from them on their lips into the nations and will begin a revolution that is continuing to this day with gospel multiplication and transformation of the world around us. Again, elsewhere in the New Testament, that's exactly how the language of fruit is used. I'll take you back into Colossians 1 as an example here. Paul speaks about how in the whole world the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing or multiplying. Which, of course, is what happens with living things. They multiply. And so... To summarize what I'm trying to say to you here, friends, is this. As the vine dresser is walking in and among his vine, the first thing he's doing is he's looking for fruitfulness in the branches. And that fruitfulness will be demonstrated in your life as godliness, a transformation into the character of Jesus Christ, not perfectly and not completely and not instantly, but progressively and steadily. Then the outflow of a life of service and passion and love for the Lord that's dedicated in obedience. What can I do for you, Jesus? And then the impact of the gospel in and through your life to others. Sometimes in seeing people come to know Jesus, sometimes in countless other ways that the gospel impacts others through us. That's what the vine dresser is looking for. He's looking for living branches that are bearing fruit like that. Now, this brings us to another implication then, a second thing of what the vine dresser is doing, which is this very negative image that Jesus brings in where he says that the vine dresser is cutting away dead branches. So inevitably, as he looks at the vine and examines the people of God, he sees branches, individuals within the church whose life does not demonstrate the life of Jesus and does not explicitly show any fruitfulness or impact of the gospel in them. Now, I spoke to you a little bit about this last week, so I don't want to dwell on this at, at length, except to help you to see how this, what, what this has to do with fruitfulness, the connection here. He says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And further down in verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Why is he speaking so harshly? Why is Jesus so, so stark in his warning to these men about what happens where there is no life? I think part of the reason is that he's preparing these apostles for what they will encounter as ministers 
they'll encounter this very soon because, you know, among the group of them, there are 12 of them specifically called by Jesus to be disciples. One of them has already demonstrated that he's a dead branch. It's Judas. He's betraying Jesus even as Christ is speaking. And a few days after Christ's crucifixion, he'll, he'll commit suicide. And so we'll begin a pattern throughout the New Testament and the history of the church that the church you see is not necessarily the church in God's heart and in his sight. There's an overlap, but the two things are not the same thing, which, by the way, helps us understand some of the darker and more heinous aspects of church history. The church that we see in the world is not the same thing as the church as God sees it. In other words, there are within the people of God individuals who have never really known Jesus. What happens, Jesus is saying, is that though they're dead branches, they get cut away. I can tell you, I think that part of the reason why Jesus is saying this to his apostles is to prepare them for this reality because there is nothing more heartbreaking, more frustrating, more discouraging in the life of any church leader than to see an absence of spiritual life within someone who is ostensibly part of the church. A lack of fruitfulness that shows that no matter how much you preach and teach and seek to communicate the gospel, it's not taken root and brought about real radical change within them. And that was a reality within the early church that Jesus was preparing these men for. So for example, decades after John wrote his gospel, he wrote a letter which is called First John. And he describes people like this, dead branches. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. So he's saying there are certain people who were part of the church, and now they've left because they're just showing their true colors. They were never really part of Christ's people. That's why they went out in the end. They didn't, they didn't abide. They didn't remain in the vine. They're like dead branches that are cut off. I think Christ is preparing his apostles for this reality that whenever we look at the church as a whole, we're seeing an imperfect gathering. There's life everywhere, but there's also something imitating life, something that's not real. Individuals who've never really encountered Jesus, never surrendered their lives to him, and therefore don't have their, his power in them. I think another reason why he's speaking harshly and strongly to them in this way is to underscore the need for self-examination within all of us, within you. As humans, we have an almost limitless capacity for self-deceit. The ability to believe things about ourselves that are not true or to buy into myths. I think one of the most obvious ways in which that shows itself in our society at this particular cultural historical moment is the way in which we live with a fun functional denial of death. We live as though we are immortal. We're shocked whenever we're reminded with that we are actually mortal creatures. As we put it out of our minds and our hearts, we live as though it's not there. We deceive ourselves. 
And then when someone does die, we go to funerals, and then we offer each other cheap platitudes. Even if we don't believe in God or the afterlife, we speak with easy platitudes about how they've gone to a better place. And what is this? It's just the human capacity to believe in a myth that makes you feel better. And that exists within the church also when individuals carry the name of Jesus, profess that they are believers in Christ, but their life does not show anything of the reality of the power of the Spirit of God at work in them. Jesus is encouraging, therefore, self-examination. He's saying, is your faith real? Are you really connected with Jesus? And his his words then in, in, in John 15 are meant to stir us from a kind of stupor sleepiness in which we begin to examine our own hearts and we ask questions like this. I may call myself a Christian, but does my life demonstrate the power of the Spirit within me to bring about the change? Have I changed from what I was? Am I a new person? Is the fruit of godliness showing itself? And as I said, not perfectly, not completely, but definitely and steadily. If I call myself a Christian, is my life overflowing in work and labor for the Lord? Is he the Lord of my time and of my money and of my gifts, of my entire life? Am I obeying him in service in whatever sphere God has put you? I may call myself a Christian, but is the gospel so inside me that it is impacting others, whether in comforting the grieving or in encouraging the struggling brother or sister or in sharing hope with a lost world? Is the gospel bearing fruit in and through my life? These are the evidences of fruitfulness. Jesus wants every believer to not sit there in self-deceit, I go to church, therefore I'm okay, But look at your life and say, does the life of Jesus pulsate through me in a demonstrable, visible, fruitful way? And you'll come to one of two answers. Either you'll come to the answer in which you'll say, absolutely, yes. And it's not because of anything in me, it's because Jesus is in me. It's not because of any capacity or gifting in me, I mean, but rather because of the life of Christ in me. All praise be to him. And you'll feel more assured and more comforted and stronger in your faith because you can honestly say to Christ, I know I'm alive and that I'm abiding in you and you in me. Weakly at times, imperfectly, with frailty, with all of those caveats, but nevertheless, yes, the life of Christ is in me and you'll know comfort. Or... In a moment of honesty, you'll say, whatever I thought about myself, I now see it's not true. And you'll confront the frightening reality that you're not alive, not alive in Christ. There's a deadness to your spiritual life, which is hopeful because then you can do something. You can come to God and you can ask him for his grace and his help and his mercy and you can obey the call to submit your life to Jesus and receive his grace. The vine dresser is looking for fruit. He's cutting off dead branches. Let me tell you one last thing. The vine dresser is also pruning 
the good and healthy branches, the living branches. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, the good ones, the ones that are full of his life, it says the vine dresser prunes that it may bear more fruit. I know that you and I, we are a bunch of city slickers, so I don't want to assume that you know what pruning is all about. And let me just offer you an explanation here. A vine, a grapevine that is left untended, can grow to quite a considerable size. We have one that's just outside the church office on a building adjacent to it that has, has grown up to um, from above the ground floor and the first floor of a house next door. This thing is enormous. And I know it's a grapevine because I've eaten the grapes off it. And uh, it does bear some fruit. Um, but it's mostly leaves and branches. It's mostly just greenery. And that's what a vine will do. It'll devote most of its energy into growth like that. And so a, wine, a wise uh, vine dresser will come along with his clippers or shears and will cut back the branches, sometimes quite violently in the sense that the thing can be cut right back. You walk through any vineyard uh, in one of the, the, the warmer climates, so I've no doubt that this uh, climate change is going to allow us to grow all kinds of interesting varieties of grapes here in the UK in, in, the short, in the near future. But anyway, you go to France, you go to Italy, you walk through one of the wine regions, you'll see these vines, and they often look like tiny, stumpy little things. They're not overgrown, they're not the size of houses, they're small. And that's intentional, because as the, the farmer cuts back this vine, more of its energy is dedicated to the production of fruit and less of it to, to production of just useless growth. And that's what pruning is all about. It's the same with many species of plant. And so the father, he's saying, is, is walking through, examining his vine and cutting away everything that's useless so that it will bear more fruit for him. He's interested in the fruitfulness of every life. Now this is, we have to admit this is primarily a negative image, to begin with at least. Christ was using the metaphor of a vine he could have pulled on any one of the positive images that the scriptures use in similar metaphors. He could have spoken about watering the vine and of the love of God poured into our lives. He could have spoken about the fertilizing work, you know, as the word of God and so on into your life. And the, elsewhere in the New Testament, he does speak in that way of digging around so that it produced more growth. He could have spoken about the protection of the vine, which is a theme that runs through the Old Testament. But he doesn't speak about any of these positive metaphors. He speaks of the one that you and I will flinch at when we begin to contemplate what he's speaking of here. The pruning, the cutting back of the vine so that it'll bear more fruit. He's without doubt speaking about pain, about loss, about limitation, about discipline. Why? Because left untended, our lives are, resemble a natural wild vine. We'll grow and grow and devote ourselves to everything except the difficult work of bearing fruit for God. We'll choose the easy path. Because the difficult work of bearing fruit involves things like repentance and self-denial and sacrifice 
costliness and courage and these sorts of things. To bear fruit for God requires that. And you and I don't naturally want to devote ourselves or dedicate ourselves to those things. We'll rather send out our branches and grow in all kinds of useless directions, pursuing the things that we think are important rather than bearing fruit for God. We choose the easy paths of comfort and pleasure and instant gratification and left to ourselves, therefore, we're fruitless. And so the Father gets involved in our lives. He takes up his garden as she is and he begins to cut. And his cutting work has intention and wise design. It has to do with the work that he wants to accomplish within you internally. His cutting is there to kill pride, to kill self-sufficiency and independence. It's there to kill lust that's latent or that's expressing itself within the heart of the believer, to cut and cut until that lust is, is destroyed. He wants to kill our tendency towards ease and laziness and apathy. He's cutting and cutting away to bring about a reorientation of heart. And this cutting isn't only there for the internal change, it's also there, you can feel the pruning in terms of the circumstances and the outward observable aspects of your life. Sometimes the pruning work has to do with cutting away health. Sometimes it has to do with cutting away at your success. Left to yourself, you're pursuing success in life, and sometimes the Father just intervenes and stops what you're doing. Sometimes it has to do with cutting away relationships. There are many relationships that we can throw ourselves into that actually hinder the work and the fruitfulness of God in us. Most common of all, of course, is when as is so often a challenge within a church of ours, there's so many young people who are single, who desire to get married, who end up romantically entangled with people who don't love Jesus. And either that will take you into a dark place and away from the Lord over time, or you'll experience the pruning work of the Father in your life and all the pain that's involved there. It may be that He'll prune your wealth because you know what an entangling power money can be to quell and dampen the love for Jesus. Not always. I think there are people with a grace to handle wealth, but most of us deceive ourselves that we're those people. And so in God and his mercy is a wise vine dresser may well keep a limit on your success and wealth. And there are countless other examples, but all I'm trying to tell you is there are things that you will experience as pain in life which are actually the design and the wise work of the Father at work in you because he wants to bring about fruitfulness. How can you endure such, such things? Occasionally, we'll find myself in a conversation with someone in the church who's going through particularly dark moment, whether because of bleakness within or because of circumstances without, 
And sometimes I'm conscious that the situations that God allows us to go through in life can seem unbearable. It tests my ability to the maximum as a pastor, as any of the elders will share with you, to know how to offer comfort in those moments. Christ's own disciples are being warned here and prepared that they will face unimaginable pains and challenges in the years to come. And you know how it is, how on a hot summer's day like this, you cannot even begin to think what cold feels like, can you? You've forgotten what the winter feels like. And how on an evening like this, when they were celebrating Passover, they wouldn't have remembered what hunger felt like because they've just eaten a wonderful meal and they're feeling replete with the lamb and the wine digesting in their bellies. You forget what hunger and pain feels like. And it's in those moments when you need to hear what Christ is saying here. The Father's going to prune your life. And how can you face it when it happens? How can you face it now if you're going through it? I think there are a couple of things you have to know in those moments. The first is that the Father knows what He's doing in order to produce more fruit in you. There's no use comparing your life to the person next to you because they're a different person. Their circumstances, their wiring, everything about them is different. He won't treat them the same way he treats you, but he knows exactly what he needs to do in your life for the purpose of producing the fruit that he wants to see. So nothing that you're facing by way of pain or setbacks is meaningless. In fact, on the contrary, it's a demonstration of his incredible love towards you as a father. In Hebrews 12, where he speaks basically on this theme, of the father's discipline in our lives, the author there brings it to a focus when he says that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. You have no idea, do you, what, what's going on or why. But the promise is there that eventually in time you will see the work of God in the pruning action of the Father will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And you'll have more fruit as a result of what he's put you through than you would if he'd left you as an unpruned vine. That's why Christ, I think, ends this section and tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In other words, there are a million directions that you could run in right now as I'm about to leave you that all will result in useless labor. But the Father has in mind fruitful work, fruit that remains and that lasts. Never allow your life to be exposed to the superficial judgment of men around what is or is not good and what is or is not fruitful. Only the Father's verdict counts and only He knows what He's accomplishing in you. He wants to make you more fruitful. 
And the other thing I want you to see here is that he has in mind the pursuit of his own glory. Which is why in the eighth verse he says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And in this, Christ has left us his own example. Multiple moments in these chapters as Jesus is preparing his disciples for what he is about to endure by way of his suffering on the cross. He frames it within the context of his own desire to live for the glory of his Father. He says, for example, in chapter 13 and verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, as he goes to the cross, the glory of the Father is going to be radiated into all the world through what Jesus would do for us. Again, he says in the 17th chapter, in the fourth verse, he's praying now to the Father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So we are getting a window into the insight and the mind, the inner workings of Jesus as he resolutely moves towards the cross. The inner driver, the passionate motive of his heart is I want to bring maximum glory to the Father who loves me. And none of us can deny that that is exactly what Christ accomplished paradoxically dying the death of a criminal like many thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of others who would die a similar death. Christ is the one whose name we know because he has glorified the Father in his obedience walking the path that he had to walk. And now he's saying to the disciples, that's what you are called to. Your whole life, the reason why the Father has you here on earth is that you might live for his glory. And that's part of the reason why he'll prune you. So no, brother or sister, that whatever the Father exposes you to or does in your heart, he does it because he is pursuing his own glory and that your life may radiate the goodness of the Lord who has saved you and who loves you. As we contemplate these realities, we're left on one hand with deep hearts of gratitude to Jesus who endured a pruning like you and I will never have to face in going to the cross that he might bear fruit for saving the world. He's also bringing us to a point of personal response and surrender in which we say to the Father, Father, do with me as you please. I'm here for your glory, not for my own. You open your life up to him and say, do with me as you choose, Lord. Work on the inside. Adjust my circumstances. I open my life up to your wise hands. I want to lead us in prayer. I'm aware as I speak that if any of you are not a follower of Jesus, you would not call yourself a Christian. That What I've been describing to you is perhaps an unappealing vision of the Christian life. Because you hear the pain. You hear something of the the setbacks and the frustrations that can be faced in the life of the Christian. But of course, on the other side of that is the profound sense of meaning in living a life that is connected to Jesus. What else could you devote yourself to in this world that will last? I want to encourage you to 
confront that reality. But I want to pray on behalf of those of us who are believers. Let's bow our heads together and let's respond to this in prayer.